Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Billy Watson TV. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our returning guest today, an esteemed um, person in the world of exposing the lies that are out there and bringing the truth to the masses, so he's one of us. Welcome to the show, Andrew Kaufman. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing great, Billy. Thanks for having me back. That's cool. Yeah, good to catch up with you again. You know, it's amazing when you know I chat to you, then it's a couple of months we to chat to you again. I'm just watching a few of your videos amongst all the other things that are out there, but your ones, certainly when they come up, I try and pay attention to them, and you're doing so many different things. It's mind-blowing. You're on one topic one week and another topic the next, and a seminar, and this is like, who's this guy doing this? What, what batteries are you on? <laughs> I, I certainly keep busy, but you know, it's my, my, the, the focus of my work has, has shifted really since, you know, the pandemic has uh, kind of undergone some, some waning, uh, thankfully. But, you know, I was really focused on debunking medical science, right? Virology, vaccines, germ theory. And I kind of reached, a point in that research that I realized that uh, there's no redeeming qualities of medical care outside of perhaps extreme, you know, trauma uh, reconstruction. And so yes. I've shifted to really focusing on educating about natural healing and uh, ways that, you know, people can empower themselves to get better. So uh, you see that uh, I'm doing interviews and, and presentations, right, on, on all these different topics, because the you know education about natural healing involves quite a lot of things right so you've heard me uh talk about water which is a topic i'm very passionate about and i feel that it plays a key role in biology and health and then of course a lot of, of uh, detoxification nutrition um, and recently i've been talking about alchemy and how it applies to healing yeah i watched an interview with steve young and the two of you gave good presentations on alchemy. Again, it's just fascinating when you've got all these things, especially the Steve Young interview, you had all the old kind of myths and that, and you can bring them, it makes you think that these things are somehow, you know, just making up fantasy or stuff like that, but they're actually very real, based on earth, fire, wind and water, you know, the, the elements. And it just, even just that aspect of it makes it a lot more grounded and things like this. And so there's a lot of knowledge in the past that is certainly with the medical establishment coming in, because we've done pro um, shows on that as well, where the, the history of the pharmaceutical industry is obviously a big scam with the Rockefellers coming in, and they've suppressed all these. They don't want us thinking about these other so-called historic things that are actually very real. Would you like to talk a little bit about that particular topic, since we mentioned it, the alchemy and the aspects of that and that area of the research that you've done? Yeah, well, let me uh, just say that, you know, you're you're absolutely right about um, us kind of taking for granted that that medicine was always in the direction it is right now, because if we go back to the 1800s um, in the United States, um, naturopathic medicine and homeopathic medicine were the predominant uh, forms that were present at that time. Right. And they had this knowledge that has kind of been suppressed over the last uh, century plus. But alchemy is also something that really is ancient knowledge and wisdom. And it's often attributed to ancient Egypt. Um, but if we follow it from there, we see that the knowledge actually went east um, to the Eastern cultures as well as, and then later on was re-imported to the West 
uh, and many of the Western scholars of the Middle Ages and Renaissance actually were students of alchemy, uh, people that you know were still taught about today, even in mainstream um, you know education camps, uh, people like Isaac Newton. So alchemy is not you know what we're told in school or in the popular culture that it's you know some uh, type of magic where you turn lead into gold that that's really a, a metaphor yeah. for the transformation process and we see this you know this is really what alchemy is is it's a, a way of understanding and describing nature and it lends to insight uh of of um how to work with nature and help bring accelerate various types of transformations but you know what i'm talking about with the transformation is just part of our everyday experience. And this is why I began to talk about it in the context of health and healing, because when I was exposed to this information or, you know, way of understanding things, immediately I could relate to it from my own experience. And so, for example, just one that we can all uh, obviously relate to on a daily basis is when we eat, what happens to the food, right? So we put, you know, a piece of cooked flesh, a vegetable, a fruit, right which is in one it's in one form of matter of embodiment right it's a piece of watermelon right it's pink in color it has a lot of water in it it has all kinds of other things vitamins and minerals it has fiber and then we put it into our body and what happens it doesn't stay in that form anymore right it it becomes actually our body right we turn it into our own flesh so that is really just as amazing as turning lead into gold, but this happens every day and we take it for granted. So using this understanding can help you actually accelerate or much more effectively transform things about yourself that you want to change. So for example, if you're you know suffering from pain all the time, you wanna turn that into something different, right? Into maybe into function. Right. So if it's back pain, you want to then be able to use your back to do exercises and activities. Right. And that's that's a, a kind of transformation. And alchemy describes the different steps that nature undertakes to bring about that kind of a change. And that's really uh, the, the quite simple nature of why it's useful in this framework. Yeah. Steve also talked about how kind of gonna be, he has seven stages for like creativity and releasing a product and there's somebody who tries to be creative myself and then try and put something out to the market you know there's like a level of excellence that needs to be attained but these stages help you break them down and then methodically you can work with nature to achieve the best you that you can and you can't skip a stage and everyone kind of works together as the whole and it's a bit like the human body, the different parts, but it's all together the whole. Yeah, I just find it quite fascinating. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that, really. Alchemy, we always get this idea about being, just being led into gold, but there's, that's just metaphors for even transfer. Like, I see lots of people at my work and stuff. I'm working in a factory these days, part-time, but they're like the rough material and they don't realise their potential. But you've got to work on yourself. And I watched an interview where was it Richard Grove or Gove from Grove? I mean, yeah, Richard Grove. That was a really great interview because that was again about people trying to be improve themselves and you know working on themselves and 
you're getting together with like minds and not focusing on all this other external noise that we've got and trying to, you know, help each other and support each other. I think it's very difficult these days for people to succeed and you kind of look externally and everyone else seems to be doing better than you. So it's hard not to judge yourself and think you're worthless when it seems to be money, money, money is a epitome of success and many doors to that seem closed. So how do people, you know, feel good about themselves and maybe if they're not happy at their job and work and they see no potential, where, where's the first step for going to try and how can I get out of this? Because it's a long way right. down, it feels like, you know, and just like I'm stuck here forever. So that's why they just do the rat race and watch the beer and football at weekends because that's their lot in life. People are born for a reason. I don't subscribe to this. I'm here for no reason. I think everyone has a purpose, you know. So that's a part of alchemy and whatever is finding that out and transforming into who you're meant to be. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, what I see is that the cultural programming has essentially um, replaced abundance, right? Because um, in my opinion, right, when we come onto this earth realm, that there there is abundance here. And we should all be able to partake of that because there's more than enough for everyone to have a share. And in order for there to be equity, right, back in history, there had to be some medium of exchange because, you know, like Billy, you might have a skill and produce something based on that skill that I want and I don't have that skill, but I have a different one, right? So I could, we could change the, exchange those things with each other, right? And so uh, it makes sense to have a medium of exchange and that's really the idea of money. But well, they used to have tally sticks and uh, the Bradbury pound and stuff like that, which was money without interest. When you have yes. your city on money, that's why Jesus threw the money lenders out of the temple. That's exact, so that's exactly where I'm going is that so the idea of having money uh, as a, you know, a finite, it's got to be something that's, you know, limited quantity, that's stable, right, that can can offer a way because like, let's say, for example, that I uh, make cars right? But you raise chickens. Now, we can't just trade one chicken for a car, right? Because a car has much higher value. It takes more labor and materials to produce. So there needs to be a way. How can, how can you get a car for me? Because I don't need, you know, a thousand chickens to feed my family. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's why it's useful to have something like, you know, and it could be almost anything, right? But it has to have certain properties uh, in order to maintain stability as a medium of exchange. And what's happened over time is that uh, mostly governments, but other uh, institutions as well, like banks, right, have come up and only being allowed by the governments or perhaps even set up by the government, some of them, um, or in, in cahoots with each other to exploit money and turn it into something else. And so instead of realizing that we can experience abundance and that we can have meaning in our life and that we can be productive in order to fulfill that meaning and purpose, which is the true nature of humans and what would really motivate us, that that's been transposed from abundance to currency, right? or you know dollars paper money credit in your account all these kind of things and and then that becomes something that we're chasing rather than something that's already present in our lives and so 
they have set it up where we essentially become slaves to that because you need to have it in order to live, right? There's a price just to be alive rather than an inheritance of the earth's abundance. Now there's a debtor obligation. And so people who don't have the inspiration and don't realize that they can actually experience the abundance simply by being inspired and having meaning and doing something you know, good in the world, the abundance will come from that right? Almost naturally. So you don't have to be a financier or a savvy investor. But if you don't have the faith or realization that that's the true nature of who you are, then you fall into this slavery paradigm where you you work, you know, so many hours for a paycheck. And, you know, how who came up with the rules about a 40 hour work week or work <laughs> five days and two days off? You know, that's certainly not from nature. Mm. But that exhausts you to the point that when you finally are free from that obligation, that all you want to do is escape, right? And then, of course, the consumer culture seizes the advantage of that with you know sports, with alcohol, with uh, consumerism, right? And now, of course, with uh, social media and other uh, electronic uh, control mechanisms, so to speak. So, um, you know, this is the point that we're at and, and what really is the awakening that's going on now is realizing that the, the, all of these institutions and systems don't really suit our nature. And it's time to move on from that and to, you know, develop a new, much more natural, much more human uh, way of living and experiencing this abundance. Sounds good to me. You know, money, we think it should create abundance, but actually create scarcity because, you know, it goes up and then if you don't have any, then you don't get access to things. But we know that if you use free energy, you know, we could obviously not have any bills and then that would have a house and then everyone could be free to create as their heart intends. Like the past few years, in fact, for 30 years now, I've been trying to build websites and educate people and do all this stuff. And the past three years I've been interviewing like yourself and other esteemed people and trying to get the truth out so it feels like on one level I've achieved quite a lot and I have actually in the real world I've done a lot and put my love out there and you know but on the same level I'm being shut down from Vimeo and this and that and then I've not really made any money I'm not doing it for money but then I'm having to then go to this factory job three days a week where it's it's there's worse ones out there I was doing Amazon driving which was hell but anyway we survived that we're doing this job was like killing my soul, and it's just like, why am I here? I'm can do better than this, you know. So it's not like I'm feeling better than the people there. Just like my potential is not, you know, I'm wasting my time here just so I can put food on the table, and it's really frustrating to want to get to that point where you can just pick an apple off the tree. The government loved us. They should plant fruit and vegetables everywhere, you know, instead of big fancy. There's a talking bin where I live, you know. You put the rubbish in the bin. It says thank you very much. I was like, who spent money on that, you know? That's right. Well, Billy, you know, look what's happened over the last couple of years now. I mean, a lot has happened, right? But uh, you saw that that many people were out of work, right? Uh, originally because of the lockdown and then uh, because of government handouts, people didn't go right back into the workforce. And, you know, some people end up to be just on the government uh, payroll, but uh, many people started their own businesses, 
or you know did something different so they went from being an employee right slash slave to now being a business owner now that you know requires uh, taking risk of course and it requires a uh, effort and uh, a lot of independence but people see that this is this is much closer to what it's like to be a natural man on the land right that you take charge that you find some inspiration and some meaning right and then you take action in the real world to bring it about and then you know if it's uh if you have the right intention and the right effort and um and it really contributes to the community then the abundance will flow to you right kind of naturally and a lot of people took advantage of that uh because they realized that you know we can't it, it, it's miserable to go go on like this right yeah. and i'd rather i'd rather just be broke and getting a check from the government than continuing that but there's something much better because i can actually you know i always had this dream of or i always had this idea for this invention i never pursued it and now's the opportunity and then you know i mean this happened to me really because i and i had the you know the desirable professional career um, that's looked up to generally in society, um, right. Of being a doctor. But I realized that, uh, it was a terrible thing to be doing that. I was, you know, pretty much expected to harm people in that role. And I could no longer, you know, justify that. And of course that got me in a conflict with my employer and I had to start fresh. And what did I do? I just really, I just, put my passion out there to the world. And then I said, you know, anyone want to do a consultation with me? And then people just signed up. And so, you know, all of this abundance then came in because I was just doing what I believed was the right thing to do. And that that's really the way that it's supposed to work. I think your own mind can get in the way quite a lot because belief, you know, maybe because of your background where you're a doctor and you've been successful you're kind of used to it the transition is easy but if you've always kind of struggled and you've always got there and you might want to try and do something it's like treacle almost you're trying to fight yourself out and you've got daily chores and everything around you and it's just then you don't think you're worthy almost there's like you know money's other people have money and it's like we, we should get taught these things basically you know in this so-called school i know you've done with your children and i actually was quite impressed you said that once they got the hang of they were dictating their own curriculum, then they went through the roof because then they had the passion for it. You know, these are the things that children need to hear in this. You know, my, my mother will say, my mother used to have a phrase, uh, what was it? Something about if you want something, then if you ask for it, you're not going to get it kind of thing. <laughs> it's just yes. like, it's like, well, what's the, you know, we should be taught to ask and to, like I listened to somebody else who was, um, an athlete and he had the vision board up and then all of a sudden he never looked at it for many years and next thing you know he'd achieved everything in that vision board that was in his room for 15 years growing up it's the power that we have to create but we need to kind of believe and that's a large part of it it's not just i need to do this i need to do that and then the money will come can you talk a little bit about the mind and how that interacts in this absolutely i mean you have to of course, believe in yourself and have faith that, you know, what you're doing is important. And that has to come from within, 
right? And actually, Billy, you know, what, what often happens when someone decides that they're going to leave, right? For me, for example, you know, people said, what do you mean? You're, you're going to give up your medical license? That's insane, <laughs> right? And some people were angry or resentful about it. And that is typically what happens when someone decides that they're going to do something on their own. And, you know, that may be partly jealousy uh, from others that, you know, oh, I wish I could do that, but I don't believe in myself or, right, whatever doubt is there and you don't have. Culture, isn't it? It's culture. You try to do something, everyone wants to bring you down or you'll never be a rock star or you'll never that's be right. this, you'll never be that. Okay, and that's for these special people. You're just ordinary. Right. And so, so what I just did is I had a vision, you know, and I meditated on this uh, as well, um, which is, uh, you know, just really kind of sitting in stillness and silence and focusing on it and imagining what it could be like. And the more that you do this, I mean, even uh, some very, you know, mainstream scientists like um, uh, Campbell, uh, uh, my, my, I think it's my big left toe. Um, talks about this, that if you just focus on these positive visions or outcomes for yourself, it increases the probability that they'll come true. And um, the more you do it, then over time, you actually take some action toward that and get closer and closer, and then it can come about. And you have to have the belief that it will come about and that you are capable of manifesting that reality for yourself right and that means that your goals and intentions um, have to be true right i mean they're going to be of course selfish in some respects but they need to be meaningful right like uh, for me you know my real goal and motivation is to bring justice and you have to know the truth about certain things in order to have justice right and so for me it's about health and biology but you, you know, I, that's what motivates me. And I do do some planning of how am I going to make a living, but that's a secondary outcome, right? And so th this is, this is really important is you have to have the right intention. So if your goal is to get rich and famous, right, that's not the right intention. That's not bringing value to the community, to your brothers and sisters. And, it's all about the universe knows your intention, and if it's for the greater good, then it can make it happen. You're, you're working in tandem with something that people call God, or some other people give it different names. The simulacrum, some guys talking about, and you know the etheric field or whatever. But that greater good intention allows the universe to give you. If you're just thinking, I'm going to, but then it seems to be like criminals and stuff. They, they get successful. The government, the mafia, they're just pulling it all in. You know. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, you know, that may be true that they um, defy the system and get away with something. But think about what it would be like to live that life, right? Always worried that you could be, you know, incarcerated and, and being guaranteed to spend some of your life behind bars, uh, right? Also worrying about other people um, taking you out, pushing you out, right? All this kind of thing. So if you want to live in that manner, um, taking risk all the time and also knowing that every time you do this, right, you're hurting other people directly. And then, of course, the universe is going to, through karmic forces, bring that back upon you at some point so that you learn. 
Um, I just watched right. an interview with a British sprinter called Dwayne Chambers, who was fourth in the world, but he went to America. And some guy says, all the top ones, they're taking these steroids. You should take them and you could become number one. And because it was upbringing and that, he, he used to lie and stuff. He says, yeah, I'll take it. So then he, he took it, became, he was winning races and stuff, but he was never happy. And, you know, it was yeah. eating away at him. And then eventually he did get found out and he says it was the best thing that ever happened, but he kind of needed to go through that to learn these lessons that we're talking about now that it's not worth it to cheat and to lie. And, you know, that's right. Because, you know, what's the motivation to do that, right? It's to be the number one, right? Which is your own personal fame, but you're not doing it from you, right? You're, you're cheating. Yeah. <laughs> now everyone else may be cheating also. Right. But that, <laughs> that doesn't make it right. It's like this uh, boxing match recently. I don't know if you know, there's a big U UK boxing match with Conor Benn. He's been tested twice now, positive, and he's been using women's fertility drug because they're taking synthetic testosterone. And his body transformation has been unbelievable. Then he has to take the women's fertility drug to kind of trick the brain to think there's more estrogen. So then it starts to make its own natural testosterone again because it wasn't making it when the synthetic woman was going in. So anyway, he's been found with a trace element. And a big, huge face. Just I don't know. He's he's obviously made money along the way, so it's benefited somehow. In fact, that Dwayne Chambers says he has to pay all the money back that he's made from the thing, so that didn't pan out too well. But just this idea is tarnishes family's reputation because his dad was a big, famous boxer, and it's really quite sickening. And then you, there's all these. It just seems to be very prevalent in the sport and society. You know, like even I would host a quiz, and there's not like fifty. You know, one pound for the prize, but people are on their phone cheating because they don't like losing the quiz. It's like, you know, <laughs> oh, Billy. To be honest, um, really, you know, the the whole sports entertainment industry is is a shallow pursuit. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that sports are bad. Uh, actually, I think I think the the what the real benefit of sports are is for our our participation. Um, and for learning, like, for example, you can learn about healthy competition. You can learn about teamwork. You could learn about um, playing through adversity or playing through pain. Right. And all those things um, contribute to success in in life in general. Right. And of course, it's a way to just get physical activity if you don't do physical work for a living. Yeah. Right. So it's beneficial if you participate. But being a fan, you know, it, it causes so many issues. Like one is that there is this mass, uh, psych, you know, mass mentality, right, of uh, us against them just yeah. because, you know, this is our team. Right. It's this like territoriality. And in the UK, of course, lots of times that uh, erupts physical altercations. <laughs> right. Um, you know, football riots and, and such. So. And this is a way, actually, to harness the masculine uh, energy, but subvert it to something meaningless instead of having the masculine energy uh, defend itself against tyranny. 100%. In, in they brought football back in quite quickly, even when the shutdown was still on. It's like, here's your football for you, you know, but just to get the mind yeah. That right, because they knew people were getting angry at the government, and then that this allowed them to get angry at the rival team instead. <laughs> yeah, football was for children, if you ask me. It's a Freemasonic, you know, thing. Actual football rules were invented by Freemasons just for that purpose of divide and conquer and provide minus. And I always find it quite funny when people say, "Yeah, we won the match last night," when they're sitting on their sofa, you know, drinking their beer or whatever. So you done nothing, mate. You were sitting there 
and obviously the, the actual going and playing of it and the experience and things is the right way for sport. That's what it should right. be in a big context. Grown you know, men Billy, football you, trips are crazy. <laughs> you you uh, say something quite interesting there about the sport because, um, you know, if you look at the aristocracy of the world or, you know, the elite uh, wealthy, th they don't play soccer, right? What, what sport, the wealthy play different sports than the poor, right? Soccer is, you can go to a, uh, you know, uh, a f favela in Brazil, right? With uh, abject poverty and see kids playing soccer in the dirt with a makeshift ball, right? Yeah. Because it's accessible, but there are many other sports that are only for the wealthy. And I wonder if the rules of the different sports actually teach different lessons to uh, those different classes. It'd be something interesting to look at. Well, that's a good point, yeah. I know that the field of bas baseball is very much in a Freemasonic compass and stuff like that. And lots of these pitches, I don't know if you've heard of this one, that people say, like, the, if you look down on the earth, it's almost like an electronic motherboard. And, like, the football yeah. stadiums is, like, it creates, because of the two fans in it, creates, like, a spinning energy vortex and then the pitches, like each one, the basketball, the tennis courts, the way the lines are drawn out is all like to harness energy. And, you know, there's a whole people will observe that. And that does make sense when you get these masses together. Like they had that Dave Grohl concert for the um, drummer of the Foo Fighters that died recently. Yeah. And that was very suspicious, if you ask me. You know, they had a video where his head got cut off and then all of a sudden he's died two days later and they're having his, these big tribute concerts. And it seems like they're just harnessing energy at these events. And well, really, this uh, if you look at the, for example, the Super Bowl halftime shows, yeah. or the, uh, or for that matter, you know, uh, various Olympic opening ceremonies. Definitely, yeah. right? You, you, you see yeah. that they're, they're, they're carrying out, uh, you know, uh, dark occult rituals. That's right. Yeah, the one for the big game, the 2012 one with the nurses and the beds and everything like that. There was do that one. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, that that was so profound. It's even featured in my uh, film, right, uh, yeah. Terrain. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so obviously there's deep shenanigans going on with energy, and these guys in control, they know these things, and it's our job to kind of find out what they're using and bring it to the masses for benevolent use right. and give the power back. Right. Well, you know, there's uh, there's one example, actually, where this was used in uh, this kind of thing was used in a very positive way. That I learned about, and it, it's actually through um, now now I'm oh, transcendental meditation, right? Which is really kind of like a company that teaches Vedic med meditation around the world, and you know many uh, even celebrities practice this. David Lynch um, is a big one. Oh, David Lynch, right? Uh, I was thinking of Jerry Seinfeld. All right. Uh, <laughs> but they did an experiment uh, a while back where they gathered, you know, like, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 um, people who were trained in this meditation. And they all went to, I want to say Washington, D.C., although I'm not 100% positive, it was, but I think it was in that area. And they all meditated together with like an intentions of peace. And for the next day or two, the crime rate in that area dropped down significantly. Yep. Right. So basically, that's the same kind of, you know, almost uh, ritual that is being done in, in these dark, satanic, um, you know, intentions uh, on the positive side. And, and it had this profound effect. So if, you know, a core group of individuals um, can 
collectively coordinate this positive energy, right, it can be used for really uh, good purposes. So that gives us hope in the future then, basically, if we can get enough numbers together. Because a lot of people go to these protest meetings and I had stopped going to them because I'd just seen a lot of confusion, uh, different speakers giving out, talking about Q1 minute and Trump's going to save you the next and then COVID's real and then Uncle Warren's screaming it's not, you know. It's, and I hadn't been at one for a while. I went to one on Saturday and I didn't like the energy there at all. It was still very much, you know, like they're going to do this and they're doing this and he's going to do this and she's got to, it was like totally disempowering for the people there and just saying, well, again, if you stop, we've actually won at this point. We, it's the, what you do in the moment. If you decide, we all decide we've won, there is no enemy. Let's stop switching off the TVs or the, the noise that these guys put out constantly and start focusing on what we can do in the present moment as a group to move forward to a better world. You know, it's just like all the noise gets in people's heads and stops you just seeing reality plain and simple like we get up every day and we just go to the job or there's all the habits involved there's no like day where we say right stop everybody what are we doing here what is this place what's going on and what about the future you know we said this Klaus Schwab saying you're going to do it this way <laughs> well you know what what people um, neglect to often realize is that each uh, man and woman as an individual we we have the ability to make our own choices we don't have to if we see you know the powers of society going in a direction that we don't want to participate in we don't have to participate and there are a variety of ways to express that uh, you know most simply by just not following the rules and we don't need to have this play out as a war, right? Uh, as a battle of us versus them um, and get into fights and conflicts. I, I don't think that will give us the result that we really want. We can simply not follow the rules that they put in place, start to do things for ourselves, and then their power will be irrelevant, right? Because the, the number of people who are actually, you know, causing all these problems and directing all of this against us are very, very few. And um, all we can easily, you know, take away their power by simply not listening to what they say. They don't have the ability to physically control us. And I don't, I don't think they would even uh, attempt that without our consent. Do you think that there's this agenda for like doing away with the money? So then people are scared, like, oh no, I've got money in the bank. The money's going to disappear. It's going to be a, you know, programmable computer money. And then you're thinking that's given these guys much more control. Then they're going to, you know, use climate change, whatever to, you know, there's some thing I've seen today about who was it? Oh, that New Zealand prime minister taxing cow burps, they're calling them cow farts, basically. And it's just like, how insane is this world going? They're going to push this whole carbon dioxide, which is 0.04%, I think, in the air. Apparently that's growing. It's good for the, the fields and the nature anyway. It's such a complete hoax. You just wonder how, obviously they're used to lying, but the scale of the lying, it's just repeat, repeating these lies that are out there. And people are so lost as to how to get in touch with the truth. It seems like, there is this agenda, there's a storyline that's almost going on and we're all just getting caught up on it. And if one person stands out, well, if I say I'm not going to use money, well, that's just tough if everybody's going to go in the computer digital 
thing, you know, and you see people in China, it's like literally everyone is COVID zero, despite the fact that even the Pfizer um, director this week admitted that the vaccines didn't stop transmission, which to me is a big step forward in exposing all this scam, you know? So, well, of course, you know, it, it can't uh, prevent transmission of something that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's so, the point they keep forgetting to miss out and all these guys talking all the time. It drives me crazy. <laughs> of course, because, you know, then that would essentially mean that uh, there would be no more pandemics um, yeah. once that truth was uh, out there widespread. But you bring up a great example about this digital currency because, you know, I think one of the main goals of this pandemic was actually to get people to adopt digital IDs or passports. And they oh, tried this everywhere, right? Even in where I live in New York, they had uh, a product like this, but people by and large didn't sign up. Um, but the this digital currency is the ultimate control mechanism. And it, it's going to be out, put out there and, and people are going to be coerced to sign up and participate. But this is only going to happen by people's consent. So everyone is going to be given the choice. There might be not a great choice, but it's going to be your choice. And if everyone says yes, then they're, everyone is agreeing to essentially be controlled and enslaved by that system because all of your assets then, right? Your ability to buy food, fuel, uh, rent, or mortgage payments is all going to be controlled by a central authority who could turn, turn on and off your access to those assets and can make them disappear. Right. And, and we see some of this happening already in Europe where you have negative interest rates. And if your money is in the bank, then your balance is going down um, <laughs> e each month. Crazy. Right. And which is, uh, you know, a way to essentially steal from you. So what's going to happen and and, uh, you know, how much of this goes on or not, we'll see is that there are going to be individuals who don't participate and then they're going to develop, um, you know, a way to exchange goods and services on the black market or outside that system. And this is where the real opportunity is because we can return back to using real money and get away from this central bank, you know, gambling um, control system where they, you know, can change the value and print uh, dollars at will and control access to all the resources and and the pricing of everything um it's our opportunity to get completely out of that and and go back to a way that is equitable and stable where everyone has the opportunity um, for abundance and there's no uh, policies that concentrate the wealth in just a few hands so if you're thinking that if you can't use electronic money, then like how are you going to pay for the internet and these things? Because we think that you know technology, you know, can't live without technology. And it seems to be every time another technology comes in, people get more dumb or more addicted to this thing. And I actually spent a week touring Scotland last year. I was just edited the video and watching it. Just you could see my how good it was after a week. I was like, I'm loving this. You know, it was just like I was just away from the screens and that for a week. And people think we're so into this technology, but after a week or two without it, you know, there's a lot to be getting done. Nature, just being in nature and just living your day in a simple life 
is maybe enough, but it seems like because of the cities and the entertainment and all these things, we don't we're not satisfied with just a simple life. And there's like almost humans have grown that kind of way of being. But if the economy collapsed and everything, then it's kind of back to square one. And to me, that's a more wholesome way. But it would take a while for people's habitual patterns and aggressions and addictions to come out. But ultimately, it would be better for everyone, I think. Yeah, well, we certainly, you know, there there are very, very beneficial aspects of this Internet system because, you know, primarily it gives us access to information that was very difficult to come by in the past, right, where you had to physically go to a library and, and you'd have to go to multiple libraries, right, because there might be a law library, a medical library, um, the public library, right, where you have different types of holdings. And then, you know, they wouldn't always have something there, right? So you'd have to put in an interlibrary loan request and wait a week or two <laughs> to get, uh, you know, the information. So it's made that much, much more accessible and efficient. So that is really positive. And then also it provides uh, an avenue of communication like we're having right now, right? This is a positive discourse and we wouldn't be able to do this without the internet, right? Because you're several thousand miles away from me. But uh, on the other hand, because I'm doing this, right, I'm not having this discussion with someone in my own community that I can develop an, a more impersonal relationship with. So, so there is, uh, you know, a risk reward ratio. But what really is the problem is that we begin to experience more and more of our life virtually and less and less in the physical real world. And so further and further away from nature. So exactly what you're talking about. So we have to strike a healthy balance and we have to, you know, stay away from the more addictive elements, you know, like um, like social media, really, you know, which I uh, am pretty much completely out of. And and I just use the Internet for finding information and communicating with people. But I'm also planning for this you know, possible eventuality where, um, because I'm unwilling to give up my autonomy and sovereignty, I will be cut out of some of these systems, right? So I have a way to convert my business into a local enterprise and have people come, you know, to, to me in person to learn. And I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of sort of black market liaisons, right? Who are going to, they'll be ha in the system, but be communicating with us, like getting us goods through the official channels and then trading it, you know, for premium. And this actually already happens in many developing economies where uh, local um, individuals don't have credit cards or bank accounts, but they're still doing business. And so they have these middlemen who do have, you know, the banking credentials and they basically get what right people need. But there's also ways to have much more local manufacturing and infrastructure uh, that you become less reliant on that. Right. And um, so that probably is a more natural way of living. Well, again, they're talking about have have a world government summit recently as well. So they want to make it, you know, a world government. Obviously, well, it's better to have the decisions that are getting made locally be made by people local, if you know. 
So the more local control and the more natural way of doing things, to me, those people will benefit from the decisions made by people who know what's going on in that area. And do you think this world government and this whole thing is going to steamroll ahead and they're going to do what they're going to do? Because they tell everybody, you know, it's all out there, tragedy and hope and everything going back. And, yeah, it's, we're kind of ignorant and letting it happen. So the majority are going to go along with it. Is our job in the meantime to wake others up to try and form these groups just before it seems like a, there's a train coming, you know, and we better act quickly? <laughs> well, I mean, there's there definitely is a some sense of urgency because the finality of this, you know, the last stages of putting this into effect are happening right now, right? And we're on the verge of a global economic collapse, and we're also on the verge of a significant war. So, <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, one can't help but think that these are going to provide opportunities um, to change policies and governments around the world. Right. I mean, every time there's a significant war that that changes, alliances change, structures change and uh, who's in power uh, can change. So all this has been announced you know in so many documents it's even printed right on our money right right on the dollar bill uh novo ordo seclorum right so this is where where the things are intended to go but it doesn't mean that this will actually come to fruition and you know no matter my like my plan is that i'm not going to participate in it um, no matter what the consequences. So if I get cut out of the internet, um, if I get assassinated, <laughs> right, whatever, whatever happens, um, I'm not going to subject, uh, myself to this control slavery system and, uh, you know, whatever I need to do to defend myself, not to act aggressively, to simply go outside of the system and do things for myself. But if I'm persecuted, I will, of course, stand up for myself in a righteous way. Yeah. What, what do you think about, you know, the the actual vaccines that are given? Because I heard recently that they've got a new form of human, like Homo sapien, and now there's a Homo Borg something. And they're calling everyone that's been injected. What do you know about this so-called mRNA and even the whole idea of DNA People say that that's not written. I know you're going to talk actually to Bruce Lipton, who I'm quite interested in having a chat with about the biology of belief. And some people say that these DNA are not as important as what we think they are. It's like almost just like proteins in our body, and they don't determine your genetic. Uh, you know, if you're going to be more prevalent to cancer, or whatever. You know, all these things that we're told the DNA's got this information. How does it? What is, is these vaccines RNA, or they're just some kind of thing that's making people more ro robotic because again they've got 5g and then they're testing it on graphene oxide and it's all moving and stuff like that and people say that's in the vaccines i just want to get, get your thoughts on you know transhumanism how does the vaccine the rna the graphene oxide the 5g the microchip and transhumanism um fit into this control do you think there's going to be two types of human almost that the, the ones that went into this are going to be much more like Brave New World. I think they had the different alphas and the betas, and then we're on the outskirts, the scavengers or savages. 
it's almost like they're creating that society where they're going to be the, the elites, but maybe they've got a sovereign. If you're clued in, because they're telling you all the information, if we, you know, take it on board and learn the law and become sovereign and improve ourselves and, you know, offer our value to the world more than, you know, maybe these things are kind of forcing humanity to raise up its potential so that we we're more empowered rather than just hanging around, the, you know, doing what we're told. So it's like a blessing almost, all this evil. It's like playing its part to make darkness, the seeds can grow. I know there was a lot in there. But <laughs> well, that's okay. And I think, you know, bringing up uh, Brave New World is a, a very good uh, analogy or to look at this. And, you know, I think these books were really written as forecasts of the future and not as purely fiction. So, you know, there was in in this book right all of the reproduction was taken away from humans and yep. done in in a factory essentially and all of the offspring were genetically engineered to be in different uh classes right and they had different like levels of intelligence for example um in different classes so they could have people do more subservient tasks in society versus the uh, engineers or planners um, that were of higher intelligence. But they also changed uh, the role of sex in that society, that it no longer became related to reproduction, right? It became Wonderful. related to, they promoted pleasure and promiscuity. In fact, they they encouraged everyone to have sex with everyone else. Yeah. Uh, although they did maintain the male-female uh yeah. sexual relationships right so we have a lot of parallels that are going on or have already been achieved so as a result of for example the uh, women's rights movement in the 60s and 70s you know the equality movement there has been a major shift in the role of of women and uh, a diminution of the you know biological gender roles right of the of the mother raising the children and the the father being the provider and then also you've had a change in sex right because of contraception right it was sex was really a sacred union to produce a child right and i'm i'm sure that parents always had sex more times than they needed to to, to make a child but um you know if a child came that was good <laughs> yeah, that's true yeah no, um, right. and, and then them. so this idea of contraception of the the pill right as liberating women from the burden of childbirth but you know wh why is it a burden and why is it not liberated to have children <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um so so these uh and then there's been a lot more promotion of promiscuity uh over over just my lifetime Actually, you see this in, in fashion, you see it in the culture, you see it in, in movies and TV, uh, and, it, and then it's spreading to younger and younger ages, right? You, you can see pre-adolescent girls fashion and see that they are sexualized um, and that, that those things are trendy and popular, uh, right? And part of the culture, you can see this on the TikTok culture, et cetera. And then now you have more recently, uh, this idea that gender is not part of nature, that it's uh, a choice that we make. And this is being promoted, you know, in the compulsory schooling system. 
And so you, and then they're actually doing all these experiments, right? On, on these people doing uh, surgeries, trying to stop normal human development, right? With so-called puberty blocking hormones. Yep. So all of these are all related to this, you know, quote unquote, transhuman agenda where humans become something different, much more easy to control or even farm for that matter. Right. Yeah. And uh, that even the factory production of human babies is being developed. Uh, we can see that they can um, gestate animals, you know, all the way through to birth, um, you know, using machines. They had the thing back at the World's Fair. I think we maybe talked about it the last time. There was like a reset. There seemed to be growing babies in incubators back then. Yeah, well, the, no one knows where those babies came from, but it was interesting that at these, you know, vaudeville shows that they had uh, these exhibits, you know, with these incubators. And, you know, part of that was promoting the technology because it became adopted in all the hospitals for premature babies. Right. Um, but yeah, that's very confusing of what actually went on at that time and where all those uh, orphanages, uh, where all the babies you know, came from that populated the orphanages and we're on the orphan trains around the world and such. It's a, a very interesting yeah. <laughs> subject to to explore. Um, and also, I would suggest people look into some of the publications from the Tavistock Institute, because they're one of the main sort of uh, research institutions that is looking at transhumanism and, and uh, planning about it. Yeah, who gives these guys the rights to basically, you know, decide oh, we're going to just change the species now? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, it's you now remember it's only with if people agree to participate. So whoever rolled up their sleeve for a genetic experiment, you know that that they have the consequences of that. Um, and you know, there's another aspect to this with respect to intellectual property law where if there is a proprietary technology like a gene therapy um, or an implantable device like an electronic device that if that is integrated into the animal then the animal becomes intellectual property right so if you have this technology in you then then the manufacturer of this like pfizer or biotech or uh, uh, the other company moderna may have intellectual property rights to you <laughs> to some degree. And this is true with genetically modified animals, like for livestock, um, as well as plants. And this is, you know, how Monsanto uh, be can go to farmers and sue them, be you know, because they say that some of their intellectual property is growing on their fields, even if they didn't plant it, it just was the wind blew it there. Oh <laughs> Yeah. So, so there are some very, very scary um, implications for individuals, aside from the fact of just being at risk for severe disability and death from the jab, uh, that, that you may also end up being uh, at least partially owned by the pharmaceutical company. All, all these people dying, do you think, like, there's a lot of athletes dying, it's like the graphene oxide is like cutting their heart up. Do, do you believe in this? Like, that's what's... Well, listen, the, it, let me tell you that um, having some experience in analytical chemistry uh, in the biotech industry in the past. So I worked in uh, QA and QC at um, Genzyme at the world's largest uh, 
um, bio uh, reactor manufacturing facility at the time. And it's not that simple to identify uh, specific chemicals and materials in an unknown sample. And you, you, there's a lot of work that's been done by people that are, don't have expertise in doing this, who are like, look at blood samples in a microscope. And they started looking at the vaccines in the microscope, but they don't necessarily know what they're really looking at. And you can't just identify some of these things visually. Like, for example, you know, if you if you had uh, platinum and palladium right next to each other and just were able to look at them, it'd be hard to distinguish which one's which. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another example of this is I've seen microscope images that were said to be circuits. But then I saw another microscope image of salt crystals, sodium chloride, that looked identical. Um, and the Biggleson brothers actually pointed that out. So, you know, we don't have really definitive evidence of what's actually in these things. And, you know, there are some labs that have even tested the injections and haven't even found RNA in them. <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't looked at their procedure, but... You know, so there's inconsistency and there's a lack of proper analytical chemistry. But what we could certainly say is whatever the heck is in these things, it's very toxic and it's causing the, the you know, the exact kind of problems that you mentioned, right? That there are these huge, crazy blood clots, like the entire length of blood vessels. And that's something that I've only heard about in a condition that is essentially a, a, a complication of many other conditions that leads to death called DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation. And that's essentially when your all of your blood becomes a, uh, starts clotting, uh, you know, everywhere in your blood vessels. And, and it seems like those autopsy reports are consistent with that, although I haven't heard anybody describe it like that. Um, you know, but that's something that was known about. So you don't need to have a new toxin to bring about that condition. Uh, but there's something in these jabs that causes that condition to be brought about. And we don't really know, nobody knows uh, really what it is. And many of the, even the mainstream studies done about this are not really validated. Like for example, the, there is a, an autopsy study where they used an, a, quote, immunohistochemical stain, which is antibodies, um, and said that they found spike protein in, in some of the cells. But here's the problem. Like, one is the spike protein has never actually been found in nature. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, you know, so as far as I can tell, it's something that was uh, essentially a patented manufactured protein through genetic engineering. So is this spike protein uh, real? I thought it was just something that they'd seen in the picture and just says oh, that's what's causing your damage or whatever. Right. Well, no, no. You can um, you can buy a vial of it from many different companies. I did a presentation about this where I showed all the uh, all the web pages where you can order it. But it's made by GMO technology. So so I that's why I think it's a a completely man made protein that some, they came up with a sequence they they can use the genetic code to do genetic engineering to like trick um, uh, yeast cells or bacteria cells to make it, to make that protein. And then they purify the protein and sell it, you know, in a vial for a few hundred dollars. Nice. So, so it's, it's an actual real substance that the, but, but it's never actually been found in nature. 
So right. never have they taken the spike protein from any source of nature, like, like a virus or any other organism, purified it, measured the amino acid sequence and said, oh, this is this protein that it's only been manufactured through genetic engineering and then studied subsequently, right? So it's pretty much, it's a man-made protein, but um, these antibodies, so that's one problem. So even if, even if you're really finding this thing, it doesn't tell you, you know, um, where it comes from other than from a pharmaceutical product through the engineering process. But the second part of it is, is that it's an antibody test. And where was it validated? And what what else might react to it? So if you look at, you know, antibodies, people kind of make the assumption that that one antibody only buys, binds one antigen, but that that's not true in reality. It binds several things. So how do you know what it's binding? How do, does anyone know what else it binds to, right? So it's it's not direct evidence, it's indirect evidence. If they took a biopsy of the, of the cadaver's body um, and separated out the proteins um, and then did a gel electrophoresis and cut out the band that they thought was spike protein and then did hydrolysis and looked at the amino acid content, that might be a, an experiment that really told you something about what's present in the sample. But, but they're just relying on an unvalidated antibody uh, to tell you this. And it, and it's hard to, you know, I, I think it's, you can't really interpret any significant meaning from this. So there's more kind of confusing information out there for people. You know, right. So, you know, we know these things are definitely very toxic and you should stay away from them. And they could have used all kinds of nefarious technology in there. There could be some kind of, you know, circuitry or nano devices. There could be you know, graphene, there, there could be other things. You know, I think one thing about graphene is that when there, so I looked at toxicology studies on graphene and there were some done in actual animals. And there was a very striking finding that they had is that the cell membranes of the tissue that was, that was poisoned with graphene was black right. because graphene is black. Like it's just, you know, like graphite. Um, and, and similar how it would look in gross appearance. And they no autopsy reports that I've seen have said that there are black cell membranes. Yeah. So that really makes me think that this graphene story is a bit of a red herring. Another one. <laughs> it's hard to know. You know, obviously the whole virology is a red herring, so why not everything else? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, so basically, yeah, that's... I was going to say about these vaccines, do you think that the longer they're in the body, that's just the last question because you've been there for an hour, thanks very much, but just there's a longer in the body, are we expecting people, more and more people to die over time with these? Again, we don't know. They had the patent for this vaccine as well, like in 2017. So they've been planning this for a long time. There's more evidence that it was indeed a pandemic and not just as that... Um, Pfizer woman said recently, oh, we're reacting to the science, you know, which is complete <laughs> nonsense. Well, who knows? She may not have known that there was it right. was already True. patented right. and planned, right? Yeah. So again, it just shows what kind of technology do they have? They're obviously doing something, they're poisoning people and it's been planned and people need to wake up again. We've been going on about it for ages. And hopefully this 
truth of the final, there is no virus can come out there, so we can really have a good look at the whole pharmaceutical industry and the toxins that they're dishing out. And again, you were mentioning even your psychiatry, you were giving these pills and they were causing the suicidal thoughts and you were trying to heal them. That's why you started the backing off a bit because you see when you took them off, they got better. It's like something not right here. People just have to admit this great NHS or the great you know, medical establishment isn't there to look after their health. It's patently no, no, absolutely <laughs> not. And, you know, I mean, if you, you know, speaking about psychiatric medications, um, there, uh, Peter Gotha, uh, who was one of the original founders of the Cochrane Collaborative. And, you know, when I was first training at Duke, they said, you've got to, you've got to look at the Cochrane Collaborative because what they do is they take all of the studies out there on a topic and combine them together into one analysis and tell you what the whole body of research in an area shows. So it's very powerful. And so he was one of the founders of that organization that became very prestigious. Um, you know, academic scientists all over the world look to them for answers. And he analyzed um, psychiatric medications and found that they're much more harm harmful than they are beneficial and they ended up pushing him out of that organization um, even though he was one of the founders and tried oh. to marginalize him right so this information is out there um and it's published i mean he has plenty of published papers that that show this that that these things are not beneficial yet of course there's advertisements and then there's your all your doctors who are um you know giving you these things because they don't know what else to do and they haven't really looked into it. But, uh, you know, these things are, are very dangerous and harmful. Definitely. And um, yeah, the longer you stay on them, it's harder to get off them as well. I believe they're quite addictive, quite a lot of them. So people are having, people going about mental health a lot these days, but probably a lot of that mental health is caused by the tablets they're taking for the mental health without realizing it. <laughs> yeah, there are many, many things going on, but certainly these pharmaceuticals uh, do not help the uh, usually make things worse or perpetuate things and then uh, often cause, you know, serious problems with physical and psychological health. Yep. So what's your plans for the future? What's your next talks on? We've done water. We've done sound healing as well. And you've talked. Um, what was the other thing you've got? Yeah. What was Kelly Bogan's? A psych, a psych kind of losing yeah. toxic thoughts and stuff like that spiritual alchemy, we called it. But, you know, the the two um, presentations you mentioned with Steve Young and with Kelly Brogan are both part of my alchemical detox course. And that, you know, is a, a major, major milestone for me to actually launch a whole entire course. And it's really a college level course um, that will allow give you the knowledge to actually be able to develop your own healing protocols. Of course, I give you my healing protocols as well, so you don't have to start from scratch necessarily. But it's it's really, really powerful information because if you are able to master the information in that course, you will not need the NHS. It's a practical detoxing course. Absolutely. It's it's very, very practical. So, but it gives you the understanding of what is going on and then tells you how you can put that into practice in a way that that you can actually achieve and with little expense as well 
um, you know, that you don't have to buy anything expensive to um, undergo serious healing. Not some true and, medicine library. Uh, that's on truemedicineuniversity.com um, and also my main website, uh, andrewkaufmanmd.com. Uh-huh. Can I just briefly finish with you? You've done recently, I've never talked to you with this, about the virus challenge. What exactly was that and what response did you get from that? Yeah, so that's, um, you know, what was happening is that uh, kind of a group of us like, uh, you know, Tom Cowan, uh, Mark and Sam Bailey, Kevin Corbett, um, and several others, Stefano Scoglio, um, we kind of got together uh, at the behest of Tom and Mark Bailey to talk about this because we were a lot of people there. There are some big voices in the medical freedom or health freedom community, you know, which we are part of, but who strongly uh, dislike the truth about uh, viruses not existing and accused us of being divisive in the movement and things like that and that it's an irrelevant side issue. And they've tried to challenge us to debates. But when we engaged with them, um, it was pretty clear that they weren't really interested in an actual scientific discussion or debate. They just wanted to sensationalize the issue and kind of uh, make us look bad in some way. Um, you know, even though I think many people realize we're, we're quite serious types, we're not. <laughs> we're not out there trying to sensationalize anything. We're, you know, we're <laughs> right. So, so we got together and said, you know, look, there's not really a possibility of an actual serious debate, you know, unless maybe there's some like academic virologists that really want to have a discussion, but none of them have ever um, acknowledged uh, our work. So we said, in order to unite this community, why don't we? take the experiments that virologists do, which of course we criticize as not as being unscientific, but let's take it at face value and see if they can provide validation of those methods. And this is a very basic thing that you do whenever you develop um, a, met a scientific method of, of achieving something, you, you validate it to make sure that it actually does what you think it does, right? So for example, if you if you came up with uh, a new speedometer for a car, you'd have to, you know, put that speedometer in and then test it against a gold standard, right? Uh, which would be putting, you know, two markers, uh, a, a specified distance from each other and using a, a timer to see the distance it takes to get across that mark, right? And then, and then that's the real speed. And then you compare that to the reading on your speedometer. And if if they're very, very close, right, then that speedometer is valid and actually giving you the speed with a certain error. Like maybe it's off by one mile an hour and the error is one mile an hour. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing is uh, true with with a scientific method. So their virus isolation and metagenomic sequencing, we're just asking them to provide validation and the validation we're not even asking them to compare it to a gold standard we're making it easy they just have to compare it to each other so the idea would be there'd be five separate labs that would be given samples and the samples would uh, be anonymous like they'd be secret what they are they would do the procedure and say can we isolate the SARS-CoV-2 virus out of sample one yes or no uh, can we isolate it out of sample two? And then we will know 
um, which sample actually has, you know, the alleged SARS-CoV-2 because they were, it was determined with a PCR test. Now, of course, that's not valid either, but that's the method that they use. So we're just using their method. Um, and then saying, if using their method in five different laboratories, do you get the same results? So if five different labs sequence the genome, do they all get the same genome? Yeah. Right. If it's the same exact virus, it should be the same exact genome. Yeah. So um, everyone should agree that if the method is valid, that all five labs would get the same results. And then that we could say you guys were right. Uh, we were wrong. Um, or on the other hand, if they get different results in each of the five labs, then we could say, hey, here's proof this method is not valid. And they could say, yeah, you guys were right. Let's now have a discussion. And so that that's the intention. Um, and but of course, uh, unfortunately, the response wasn't as much of a collaborative one because, you know, we thought, let's get together and challenge the virology community to just answer this question once and for all. And then we can stop, you know, because the proof will be in the results, not in, you know, what I say or what you say. Um, so we'll put it put it to the test. And it's unfortunately, Science, isn't it, to get to the truth using these experiments and basically it benefits us all, you know? Absolutely. This is exactly within the spirit of science and it, and because any hypothesis that you put out there has to be falsifiable. In other words, you have to be able to do an experiment to show that it's false, right? And then you could do that experiment and it shows it's not false or yeah. you could falsify it. And if you falsify it, then you throw it out and come up with something new. Right. And that's the way science moves forward. And so we're just trying to be a participant in that. And then, of course, since we have came up with this idea, now we have a benefactor who will actually provide grant funding to the labs to carry this out. So we're developing <laughs> a, a request for proposal that we're going to put out there to all these virology labs um, and say, hey, we'll, we'll give you one hundred thousand dollars to do wow. this study. And so, they <laughs> so it's the it's the same way that they do business normally, right? They get a grant funding, oh, yeah. Yeah. they do they do research, and uh, you know, then they publish it, and then they get another grant and do more, right? right? So so we're just basically going into the system just like any other private foundation that wants wow. to sponsor research would be. So you're going to do that with all five and actually go through the process. I thought you were just asking them, and they're going to dodge it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, we, of course, if you just go to an academic lab and say, hey, would you do this experiment for us? They'll say, get the hell out of here. Because... In the name of science, the world's falling a bit spaced in this thing, you know, it's quite an important, you know, bit of science, really. You know, you think people would want to find it, this thing. And, Absolutely. Uh, there was this story, it's a bit of a hoax woman came out from India recently. Do you know about that? She said that she um, tried to isolate the virus and all she never had the qualifications she was claiming and then people can kind of say she's the no virus woman and then they kind of look she's been disproved and then it makes everyone else get discredited there's all kind of dirty games going yeah on. well of course all that kind of uh thing can happen but you know listen even if you are a nobody with no credentials it doesn't mean you can't understand yeah. the truth about this issue you may not have a laboratory and do experiments but you can still understand what's going on Right. And, you know, that's that's kind of the case for me and Mark and Tom and Kevin and, and the others who are on our team is that, 
you know, we we don't have a laboratory to carry this out. And and many of us have never even done that kind of research. Uh, right. I mean, I have personally, not specifically with viruses, but I've I've done cell cultures and molecular biology research in the laboratory. So I understand how it how it goes. But it, it doesn't matter because they, they're still capable of understanding it of the issue. Right. And and uh, and then the ones of us that more understand the bench science will will worry about that part of um, the experiment. But but I think we you know, we have a very solid plan and it's pretty standard uh, to do this kind of research. It's you know, I mean, we're, we're not doing anything creative here. Yeah. Uh, we're just trying to say, hey, let's do the standard thing right. uh, for any technique like this. So that is actually in the process of happening. The five labs are going to do this. Well, no, we we uh, we're right now we're drafting the RFP, and then that then we'll send that out to all these labs, and we're probably going to take out an ad in a couple of journals, uh, also to promote the grant, and then we'll get we'll get uh, responses where labs will say, okay, we we have you know this. Um, staff right we have this principal investigator we have this electron microscopist we have this geneticist uh we'd like to uh, propose that we carry out the research using these people and then we evaluate those and um, have some back and forth and then then we you know we see how many people respond and um and then we we uh, make those decisions you know as things go forward and this you know is not a process that happens immediately um, and because that's not how this world works, uh, you know, or, or the, that's not how the, the scientific community works, right? They sometimes it takes them months to just write a grant application. We're not we're not requiring that. Actually, we're making it easier. And private money is always much easier than dealing with government money because there's far fewer regulations and accounting and things like that, because we're, we're not interested in what they do with every penny. We're interested in what they, if they do the procedure correctly and what their data is. And we want to make sure that they have integrity in that aspect. But however they spend the money, if they have 25 grand left over at the end and they uh, throw a big party, we couldn't care less. Yeah. <laughs> right? It will be great to get the results from that and then, you know, as you say, go into their system and debunk them. Do you think that it's all unraveling anyway? Or the, the CDC are never going to admit there's no virus, obviously, but they seem to be admitting some things like, you know, I don't know, it just seems to be almost like they're kind of trying to stir the population up in some way. Right. Well, no, listen, it's clearly um, unraveling. The cat's out of the bag, so to speak. And, you know, there are more and more um, individuals every day who are become aware of this. And once you become aware of this truth, you don't, you don't go back to believing in viruses, <laughs> right? I mean, one, one in a thousand maybe uh, has some weird experience where they go back into the matrix. But, um, you know, I think actually that is, an, and why don't we make this the last uh, um, comment here, but I think this is a rather important thing when you're looking at what are the truths of the world, that if you look at the, the direction of opinion. So in other words, if, if individuals go from, you know, thinking that climate change, man-made climate change is a, a major problem, and then 
go from there to realizing, oh my God, there's there's really nothing there. This is this is a, a hoax to manipulate us. They don't go backwards and then later on believe in climate change. Correct. Right? Uh, people who realize that vaccines are toxic and prevent their kids from any more vaccines, they don't go back later and change their mind and get more vaccines. Right? And because I think it's natural for us to go from falsehood to truth and closer and closer or more true, right? From less true to more true and then more true over time as we discover and learn things, we generally, unless we're being programmed or influenced, we don't go the other direction, Correct. right? We, they, that's why the compulsory schooling is so important to capture children at that impressionable developmental stage when they don't they have no idea about the truth really other than just through their own observation and experience which is minimal and so these authority figures implant this information as truth into them right and then it unfolds later on if if they wake up that they start to go actually toward the real truth but never go backwards so if you can see one topic the opinions moving in one direction unilaterally, that in and of itself is an indication of where the truth is. Yeah. So in my game, we get chucked in, get told a bunch of lies and they figure out the truth, move towards the truth. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, Andrew, it's been a pleasure talking to you once again. Thanks again for your time. And everyone else out there, I hope you enjoyed watching that. You can get uh, more of my interviews at my website, billywatson.tv. And of course, check out Andrew's work on Odyssey, Rumble and BitChute. And he's got new videos out every week, so stay tuned. Thanks for your time, and we'll catch you in the next one. Cheers and out. Bye-bye. Oh.